0: What's up, family? You are tuned into Law & Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We are turning our attention to Louisiana. This morning, where in February 2019, two teenagers, Salon Peterson, 13, and Jordan Bachman, 17, hung themselves inside of the Ware Juvenile Detention Center in Louisiana. We're joined this morning by two journalists that did a deep dive expose into the stories for the New York Times called Dying Inside, Chaos and Cruelty in Louisiana Juvenile Detention, as well as um, a documentary film on the same topic called Eight Days at Ware. We're joined by Megan Schutzer, co-author of both of those pieces. Uh, good morning, Megan.
1: Hi, Kat, thank you so much for having us today.
0: Thank you so much for your work and joining me and Rachel Lauren Muller. Good morning, Rachel.
2: Good morning, Kat, really happy to be here.
0: Really happy to have you all, even though I wish we were talking about something else. Mm. Um, yeah. Megan, I'm gonna um, start with you. How did you all get started on this project?
1: Um, Yeah, well, I was reporting on a different story um, about juvenile justice in Louisiana in 2019 when these two suicides happened at WHERE you Center. um, WHERE is a facility that's about five hours from New Orleans. Um, I had heard some rumors about abuse at the facility, but um, a lot of the advocacy groups that I was in contact with in New Orleans. weren't really able to provide a lot of detail um, to back up what these sort of rumors were. And when the two suicides happened, it was just this moment of like, I need to turn all of my attention to this place because kids should not be dying in state custody. This should not be possible. Um, And so that was really the impetus for what turned out to be three years of really trying to understand how that could happen and what was going on at this facility.
0: I I want to get into the stories, but I I am struck by the fact that it was three years. And I'm wondering if you both can, and and trigger warning for for my listeners. I mean, we always talk about intense stuff, but we're going to get into some pretty intense stories of brutality against children over the next 40 minutes or so. What was it like for you Megan, and then you, Rachel, to sit in this kind of content for three years, talking to these families, talking to survivors, sitting with the deaths of these young people?
2: Yeah, it's a great question, Kat. And I, I have to say it's been incredibly challenging. Um, I think, you know, secondhand trauma is a, is a real thing. And, um, we, in the course of our reporting over three years, we talked to over 150 people, over a hundred of whom were, um, people that had been incarcerated at the facility or people who had worked there. And, you know, you hear story after story of kind of horrifying abuse and it definitely takes a toll. And I, I have to say, I feel really appreciative of, of Meg and our, our reporting team, because I think we were able to hold one another in a space of great care. Um, and then at, as as with the folks that we were talking with, um, the, the process of reporting over three years really gave us the opportunity to go slowly and intentionally um, which I feel
1: really grateful for. Yeah, I would add, I mean, I think that sounds absolutely right. And we've been kind of on, um, I, don't, I don't know if roller coaster is the right word, but there are days when you hear these stories and you can hold them. And there are days when you walk out of an interview and you have to cry. Um, but I think the biggest challenge has actually been, it has required three years to build trust, to be able to, really corroborate every story and be able to publish this in the New York Times. But at the same time, as soon as you hear one story, um, there was this urgency that we both have felt from the beginning of like the world needs to know what's happening inside this facility now. And so that's been this constant tension that we felt over this time of like, how can we move faster? How can we get this done at the same time? How can we get this done in a way that um, that really does it justice and can, and, and can be the most, um, impactful or useful to those who can make decisions and use this information um, to keep kids
0: safe. You, you mentioned building relationships. I mean, the, the, my, my family is from Monroe, Monroe, Louisiana, and the South in general is notorious for being tight-lipped. What was it like to 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 build these relationships? How did you go about that process, identifying folks and getting them to trust you to tell their stories, especially given, and we'll get into this in a little bit, some of these folks are still being harassed by the folks that assaulted them as children more than a decade prior.
1: Gosh, well, I think that at first it was just really challenging to find the right people. We started with public records requests and getting staff lists, um, going to different courthouses and finding any lawsuits against the facility, um, and often relying on social media even to find people and try and contact them. and so you can imagine these two random strangers, two white women from out of state trying to you know ask you yeah. about an experience you had in some cases ten years ago, um, it was like it, it was um, it was challenging, but I think one of the things that we found was once we talked to one person and And once one person wanted to share their story, it was much easier to connect to more people. And so it was sort of a slow build and then a bit more of a wave of people reaching out to us at times to talk. And I think one of the things that we kept hearing was, no one's ever asked me about this. And also the the feeling that no one had believed them when they had shared in the past or if they had wanted to share what had happened in this facility. And so it was, I think, a lot of factors that went into people deciding whether or not to talk to us. And I think we both feel really privileged to have been able to hear these stories and to gain the trust of everyone who decided they wanted to talk to us.
0: Rachel, anything you want to add to that?
1: I mean, Meg, I
0: think you you really just nailed it.
2: Um, and I, I will say just adding that the the privilege of, of time, I mean, some of the, the folks that we interviewed in the article pretty extensively, um, we saw them, many many times over the course of many years and i think that um the opportunity to be able to go back and go back and go back uh, it, it meant a lot you know i think some of the stories that came out didn't come out in the first time that we talked and i will say you know every time we talked to folks it would be an hour two hours so these are you know hours and hours later um some of these stories were shared and i think that that's um it was a great privilege
0: Okay, well, let's start to dig into some of these stories. I want to start with 13-year-old Solon Peterson. How did he end up at where, and what happened to him?
1: Yeah, so Solon was um, in middle school. It was about two weeks after his 13th birthday um, in February of 2019. And he got in trouble for setting... Um, a roll of toilet paper on fire in the boys' bathroom at his middle school. The police found multicolored birthday candles and a lighter on the scene, and I think those birthday candles have always stuck with me just because it was just two weeks after his birthday and just the idea that, I don't know, there's something about that detail that has always stuck with me, but um, he was arrested at his school um, and taken to where you center, and Solon was a kid who... um, had had a really challenging childhood before he was adopted by the Peterson family. He had been in and out of foster care um, and struggled with ADHD and a couple of other um, mental health challenges that um, his family was working on getting diagnosed. Um, So when he arrived at where he was one of the youngest, one of the smallest kids and, um, and arrived there for something that I think um, one of the one of the advocates in our film says is the type of thing you could imagine having done yourself, or any any teenager doing, or you know, hit, yeah. I don't know, barely a teenager. Um, so that's how he arrived at where he's sent I
2: was I was just going to add um, a little bit that well, when he was arrested, one of the things that his mother said is like, "Is he going to be safe there?" And yeah. uh, she says she was assured that. Don't worry this is one of the safest facilities around um, where you Center is about 45 minutes from where the Petersons live. so it's not um, it's not terribly far but it's not that you know it's not within their their city um, and because of the the mental health challenges that Solon was dealing with um, that Meg outlet laid out, Mrs. Peterson had had advocated, To have him be taken to a mental health hospital um, rather than to a juvenile detention facility. Um, She was, you know, she was pretty adamant with us that she wanted, she wasn't trying to absolve Solon of of the consequences to his actions, but she wanted to make sure he was being cared for in a way that took into account his past and his history. Um, And this was... You know, several days he was arrested on a Friday and went before a judge on a Monday. And this is when she was petitioning the judge for this. And the judge says, no, we're going to send him back to a youth center um, where he'll be held pending a psychological evaluation.
0: Psychological evaluation that his doctor was also advocating for, correct? According to his mother, yes. Yeah. One of the more disturbing i mean I, I i watched the documentary on my phone and i I dropped it when i heard his mother tell the story of going to the facility to visit her 13 year old son and being told that he had picked his lock and so now he was sitting in solitary confinement how long did he spend in solitary confinement this baby so I was in
1: solitary confinement for multiple days i think it was five but i don't want to um i think it was five rich correct me if i'm wrong but um louisiana law he was held in in a, a cell um it's it's a holding cell that doesn't have any windows to the outside um which is against regulations kids can't be kept in those kinds of cells overnight there's also state regulations governing how long kids can be kept in isolation away from other children and he i think that's 72 hours and He was kept um, in this holding cell for far longer than that time Um, so there were a lot of a lot of ways in which they weren't following the rules set in place for how kids can be kept in in those cells
0: and talk a bit about what you learned Uh, i mean you may have known it before you started this story but i do want to spend um just a minute or two talking about what we know about the impact of solitary confinement on people particularly children who are already dealing with mental health issues
2: yeah, there's so much scholarship that has gone into the negative impacts of solitary confinement on adults, and the things that you find with adults is just exacerbated with children. you know their their brains are still developing. and so the impacts of solitary confinement of being isolated away from from peers, from um, having social interactions can have really devastating effects. Um, socially emotionally psychologically but also neurologically we spoke with uh, a mental health expert who talked about the neurological damage that that can have on a child's developing brain um, and this this is for children generally um, you can only imagine how uh, much more challenging that was for Solon who had a history of um, a history of trauma and was dealing with ADHD and um, so not only was he a child having to be um, facing isolation and the challenges there, but he also was dealing with additional mental health struggles at the time.
0: And despite what state law in Louisiana says about children being placed in solitary confinement, what did you learn about how frequent or common the practice of putting youth inside of solitary confinement was slash is at uh, the where center?
1: We heard um, very early on about the use of lockdown and there's all kinds of, I mean, that's, I guess the, the way people, some of these young people talked about it and some of the staff talked about it. There's all kinds of language for, um, for keeping kids in their cells all day, but lockdown, what we came to find really represents spending 23 hours, sometimes more in your cell, getting an hour out to shower if the guards decide to give you that hour out. And we, have just heard extensively from both young people and staff about how much lockdown was used at where. Sometimes as punishment, sometimes just because it was easier, sometimes, I mean, all kinds of of reasons that kids were being put on lockdown. Um, We had one um, former supervisor who had worked in multiple other facilities, including in other states, and she said she had never seen lockdown used um, anywhere else, the way it was used at Ware, and that was actually why she decided to leave the facility um, and stop working there. She was just so upset by that that use of lockdown.
0: Another policy that was apparently violated uh, it, it, here was the amount of check-ins that staff were were, were doing on the, the youth. What were they? How often were they supposed to check on the children? What did they say they did versus what actually happened? Uh, the, the, the night Solon killed himself?
1: Mm. Yeah, so
2: Louisiana law says that children must be checked every 15 minutes uh, while they're being held. And if they're on suicide watch, uh, that that changes every five minutes. Um, Solon was not on suicide watch at the time, um, so he should have been checked every 15 minutes. Uh, the In a public records request to the state, we were able to get the room check logs that of the night that Solon had died and it is noted every 15 minutes. There's a signature that says all room checks completed, all room checks completed. Um, however, when you look at the, the video footage that's provided, those checks were not done every 15 minutes. Um, and in fact, Solon had not been checked on from, uh, 915 till 1130 that night. Um, the video footage shows staff, um, there's a staff person that walks into the, the room where Solon, the, the holding cell is um, a cell and then there's kind of a common room space outside of it. So the staff person walks into the common space but does not look inside the cell. Um, and then there were many of these 15-minute checks that passed where no one came into that room at all. Nobody did any any checks at all. So it was a long time that Solon was not checked at, um, was not checked on.
0: And one of the most heartbreaking things that you hear the mother say in the documentary film, Eight Days at Wear, is that when they got the autopsy report, it showed that it took 15 minutes for Solon to pass away. Yes?
2: Yeah, that's the, um, there's not like definitive, it's a little bit, the autopsy report is is a little bit challenging to read, but um, kind of that, the reason that the, the, the law is set up to have children be checked on every 15 minutes is because of that sense of like, you're able to intervene if something is happening in a fairly quick, quick capacity. Um, And so had, had Solon, you know, had they been doing their 15 minute checks, they might've been able to get him down and start CPR. And, um, but that didn't happen. Uh, So it could have been preventable. His death could have been preventable.
0: The other thing that I found myself asking was where does a 13-year-old boy, a newly turned 13-year-old boy, get the idea to hang himself? And I'm wondering if you can talk about the prevalence of the culture of attempted suicides inside of the where facility.
1: Sure. Um, we spent a lot of time both talking to young people about why they decided to attempt suicide when they were held at where, but also looking at records of suicide attempts at the facility. And one of the things we found was that um, in 2019 and 2020, so those are the the years the two boys died and the year that followed, um, there were 64 suicide attempts. Um, and that's actually a higher rate per bed than any other juvenile facility in Louisiana. So we one knew very quickly, just based on numbers, that this is a really big problem at this facility, even relative to other places. Um, but as we talked to people about their experiences, and we know that any decision to attempt suicide, it's, it's complicated. There are lots of, of factors that go into that, but a lot of young people talked about how hopeless they felt in this facility. They felt antagonized often by staff. Um, they, their experiences in lockdown, Um, some of the abuse that they're experiencing, these were factors that they told us about that then led them to decide that that was the choice that they wanted to make rather than spend more time at this facility, which is really, really heartbreaking to hear any child, even thinking about that.
0: Okay. Um, Jordan Bachman, 17 years old, uh, when he was... uh, sent to the, the where, uh, center. Tell us his story.
2: Yeah. Um, Jordan Bachwin was 17. Um, he was, he grew up in Colorado and was on a road trip with his friends in, um, passed through Louisiana and got in trouble, um, was arrested, um, and was sent to where youth center and, Jordan was there. This was shortly after Christmas. Um, So he was there in December and January and February um, is when he died. And from what we heard from, you know, some of the other kids that were at the facility at the time, um, Jordan was, you know, he was this tall, blonde kid. His mom describes him as somebody that um, he loved to sing. He wanted to go to Nashville and become a singer um but at where what we heard is that he was much more subdued he was quiet um and one of his classmates told us that the one of the kids the children that was held at ware said they were in school the day that that jordan died and jordan had written on a piece of paper i'm dying inside and this this young boy told us that he he took the paper to the teacher and he said you know like look at this jordan had been in a fight that day um and uh, apparently, nothing had happened. And um, later that night, Jordan had had passed away. He had hung himself.
0: Has there been any accountability, any redress, any anything um, it, that remotely resembles justice for these two young children?
1: I think it's significant that um, the state has not done anything to hold the facility accountable. Um, There were no financial penalties. There were no sort of warnings that, you know, you've got to change something. Um, I mean, well, they did did make some structural changes. I don't want to say that they didn't do anything, but our understanding um, from staff who have worked there since and from young people is that most of the same things that were happening when these two boys died continued to happen today. The district attorney in the parish is prosecuting now just one of the guards who was working on the night that Solon died. There was a second guard who actually himself passed away. Um, But no one is being held accountable um, for Jordan's deaths. And I think, um, you know, this one this one guard doesn't really represent the breadth of everything that went wrong um, in these two boys um, suicides. Uh, And go ahead
2: please. just to just to add to that in fact um, this facility was just awarded another contract a half a million dollar contract to supervise at at-risk youth so in addition to there not being um, accountability there they are just continue to get more contracts from the state.
0: I want to talk about how where juvenile detention center came into being. You you talk about a group of of men who were meeting um, at a restaurant trying to figure out what to do with them, using air quotes here, of course, the (laughs) youth criminal element um, inside of Louisiana, where to place them. Talk about the good old boy um, network that brought this facility into being and how its origins have sort of protected it, shielded it from accountability. Well,
1: in the 1980s, a a couple of parishes in northwest Louisiana um, were struggling with changes in policy regarding um, what to do when kids were arrested. I think in the past it had been much easier to send young people to adult facilities and there was pressure to change that. There weren't a lot of juvenile detention centers in the state and so for these sheriffs and judges and district attorneys, it was becoming very costly to send these kids to juvenile detention centers in some of the bigger cities. Um, And that's part of the reason that they began meeting at the Catfish pen restaurant um, in Red River Parish. And these men decided that uh, if they built their own juvenile detention center, it would solve this problem. And I think Um, one of the things that a local state senator talked to us about was also the opportunity of creating jobs and bringing some money into the parish, and into this area. And so that was really the starting point for creating this facility. And from the get-go, they had a lot of political power, both locally, because we're talking about judges, sheriffs, and district attorneys, but um, also in Baton Rouge, where they could um, bring some state funding back to build where... And um, get these contracts. So that was the origin of the facility, which opened in 1993.
2: And and then where has uh, be, these political connections have just um, kept it in good standing with the state um, over the years? So when Bobby Jindal uh, took over and under his his leadership, there was a, a large amounts of cutbacks on on funding to. Juvenile justice in general um, into these detention center facilities, and uh, though Ware is not, it it is not a state-run facility. It's run by these um, by this group of parishes, but with the board, Um, they do receive state funding for some of their programming. And during these these cuts that were happening um, at the state level, Ware was able to maintain its contract over the years. And though we don't have from what from what was told to us, a lot of where's ability to maintain its contracts um, is because of the way it was situated politically. With some, um, this former state senator Donald Kelly, who was at the forefront of getting it founded, and um, Kenny Lofton, who was the director of the facility for a long time, his ability to lobby different legislatures uh, mm-hmm. to keep the contract and keep keep money funneling into the facility.
0: And one of the things that Mr. Lofton was able to do was when a no-bid contract to house every girl in Louisiana sentenced to, again, air quotes, should secure care you um, mm-hmm. right, describe it in your article as the most restrictive form of detention for children convicted of crimes. Um, he also was able to secure $5 million to build new girls' dormitories. I want to turn our attention to the treatment of young women inside of the WEAR facility. And let's start with the story of Shakira Williams. How old was she when she got to ware, and what was her experience? Shakira, I believe,
1: was... 16 when she arrived at where she had been held at a different facility called Florida Parishes prior to coming to Where youth center and I think you're right to use air quotes around secure care a lot of the language in juvenile justice is brings in words like care the the guards are called child care workers and it's something that becomes quite notable when you're doing this kind of reporting but um Shakira was brought to where youth center along with about a dozen other girls when Ware won this contract for secure care. Um, She describes that drive to us, or she described that drive to us as really jarring for her as someone from Southern Louisiana to um, find herself surrounded by cotton fields, to find herself in this parish um, with uh, a history um, and a population that made her feel particularly unsafe as a black woman from Southern Louisiana Um, or a black girl. I'm young, young girl, 16. Um, She arrived at where and these, um, they call them cottages, but the buildings to house the girls were not yet complete. And so Shakira was locked in a cell in the detention center. Um, She doesn't have an exact number of days that she was in there, but um, several weeks that she recalls being held on that lockdown schedule of twenty-three and one in a cell, waiting to be moved to this this other program um, where she would be housed um, in with other girls for this secure care. And and again, secure care—the model, um, at least in theory—is meant to provide therapy and lots of services and rehabilitation to. Um, to young people but being locked in a cell for 23 hours she wasn't getting access to school or therapy or the types of support that um, the judge had had wanted for her
0: well not only was she not getting access to therapy or schools she was also suffering extreme assaults I mean in the documentary she talks about uh, busted noses busted lips um, one guard who uh, choked her out are the words that she used And one of those girls still communicates with her to this day. Yeah.
2: Yeah. That's, that's actually another young person. Her name was Gabrielle Hardy, um, who was brought to where you sent her at the same time that Shakira was brought there. And, um, yeah, Gabrielle really suffered, um, was, was a survivor of, of various kinds of abuse. She was sexually abused by a supervisor, um, multiple times. She was, as you said, she was, um, She told us she was choked by guards. She was, um, you know, had her face busted lips, she says. Um, and that her story and what she shared with us, um, was not unusual. Um, in the course of our reporting, we talked to 42 people who had been held at the facility who said that they were sexually abused. Um, they named 30 staff who sexually abused them. Um, so it's the it was quite prolific sexual abuse in addition to physical physical violence, um, and starting back from when the facility was first founded, the first uh, court case against a staff person for sexually abusing one of the children there was in 1997, um, and most recently there was a guard who was arrested just this year in uh, May of 2022 for um, being caught on camera sexually abusing a boy. Um, So what we've seen is is decades of sexual violence that um, has gone underreported, if not reported at all. And the response from the district attorney and the sheriff's department, as we write in the article, has been um, one of being quite dismissive of the children when they um, allege that they were
0: sexually abused. And here we're talking about District Attorney Julie Jones, correct?
2: Yes, yes. She is the district attorney for the parish and has been
1: for about 13 years.
0: And I'd like to just read a quote from your article where she says, quote, we're talking about armed robbers and murderers, and these girls haven't even hit the age of 18 yet. Some of them. Do I worry about their safety? No, I don't. I think that they're quite capable of taking care of themselves, end quote. That type of attitude seems to not just sit with D.A. Jones but across the board with the adults that are charged with keeping these young people safe. There's a, uh, a scene in your film of some state board agency where they're talking about the suicides of Jordan and Solon where they don't wanna talk about the young people being in solitary confinement, going as far as to say not believing that, that Solon was was actually in solitary confinement because the parents said so. It was incredibly disturbing. Um, to, to, to watch that footage, but uh, uh, across the board, including the sheriff, was responsible for investigating these crimes. This sort of t- lock them up and throw away the key, and it doesn't matter what happens to them while they were while they're there. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: that was absolutely something that we heard from the local justice system and from the state, and I think a lot of coded language being used to describe these kids, mostly black kids from. Not necessarily from southern Louisiana, but the um, the sheriff's um, captain, who we quote in the article, does talk about these kids from cities like New Orleans and B- and Baton Rouge being different, being rougher. These kinds of these kinds of words that really, it's hard not to interpret them um, as really talking about black kids from these cities coming to this majority white parish um, where she works in the sheriff's office, and so. That was just something that we heard repeatedly um, from these parts of the justice system.
0: We've got a few minutes left, and I don't, I don't want to end the interview without talking about what we know about the staff at WHERE. What kinds of people are hired to work there, and what kind of training do they receive?
2: As the situation at WHERE Youth Center is similar to the situation that a lot of facilities in Louisiana are facing, which is, um, really struggling with hiring qualified staff, um, where youth center has been, uh, a c- citation is the wrong word, but they've been the state in different various audits have, have noted, like your staff are not reaching the level that we would want. Um, with their qualifications in order to to like rehabilitate these children specifically with girls in the quote secure care center um and consistently this has happened for many many years and where you center responds with well we we are unable to find qualified staff in this particular area Um, so you're having unqualified staff but that's even less of an issue if they were able to provide accurate training um, But that has also been a challenge based on the things that we've heard from folks that have worked there. Um, Recently, people have talked about how their training consists of watching videos from adult facilities. Um, So not even videos that involve juvenile justice. But that's a big part of their training are these videos. Um, They're trained on how to use different kinds of restraints. And talk about the chicken wing, please. (laughs) yeah there's one restraint that was described to us by many many people called the chicken wings um, which is a restraint where they take you you take a child's arms you cross them behind their back um and then a staff person will take their elbows and push push their elbows up so uh children described it feeling like your your shoulders were going to pop out of their sockets and it being extremely painful um and that kind of restraint again i mean i think Many, many people describe this restraint and sometimes being used by multiple staff at at the same time. So children they have um, we have reports from the state of children describing or of of nurses noting carpet burns on their faces because they would be restrained then on the ground sometimes with a staff person kneeling on their back, um, pushing their arms at behind. And just just incredibly aggressive um, use of force.
1: I think you you've, you said we're we're running towards the end of time, and I just want to make sure that we say that, like, all these kinds of physical abuse that we're describing and these restraints and and even the sexual abuse are found in juvenile facilities around the country, and I think that's one of the yeah. things that, you know, while we went so deep on this one facility, it, it always felt really important to us to be sort of grounding this in what's going on more broadly in the state of Louisiana and more broadly in the juvenile system. This is not, like one bad apple facility this is a place where there have been some really horrifying tragedies but um it's actually not as unusual um, unfortunately as as it might seem
0: that's right and I, i'll just take you know a quick 30 seconds and shout out the organ a couple of the organizations that are working on this issue locally communities united for restorative youth justice or courage um and the young women's freedom center right both of which I, I have running campaigns to close youth jails and in youth prisons. You all spoke to folks, you know, that it's been 10 or so years since they were inside of that facility. What is the lasting trauma that these people are walking with? And were there any life outcomes that seem shared across the board as a result of their experiences inside of that facility?
1: It- you know,
2: you asked that question, Kat, and what comes to mind is a, a quote from somebody that we talked to. He was held there when he was really young. Um, and is now he was there early in the facility, um, when the facility first opened. So in the late nineties, And he talked about going into the facility as, as a boy and coming out a man. Um, and he said that this facility sent me down a path I should have never been on. Um, which I, I, um, Yeah, I don't know, Meg, if you have more to add. I just was reminded of his his quote.
1: Um, I think that a lot of people that we've talked to continue to describe the ways that um, their experience at Wear made it harder to trust, had lasting impact. Um, I think, Rachel, like you were just saying, in some cases, people have, though, talked about um, really what has helped them to get past those experiences and to work through the trauma and when some of the Some of the most consistent things we've heard have been actually having kids of their own has been a way to sort of shift shift things in their lives um, and to be able to really try and protect and take care of their children, um, I think has been very healing for
0: several of the people we've talked to. Mm -hmm. All right, ladies, we have to leave it there. Thank you so much for your amazing work and um, the sex was and the films and for joining me this morning. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much, Kat. You've been listening to Law & Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law & Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Mark Time. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawandisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area.